Hello and welcome to This Week, a podcast that brings you conversations about Africa in the news, from pop culture to politics, from the comical to the serious in all corners of Africa. We bring you controversial news and themes with a fresh, educational, informative and diverse perspective. And we challenge long-standing beliefs and ways of thinking and doing things. My name is Gloria. I'll be your host for today. Make sure to subscribe to Leaders of Africa's This Week in your favorite podcast app and on YouTube. We are on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. We invite you to join our Discord community to continue the conversation. Welcome today. Hi, everyone. Ghana, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great as usual. It's been a very great weekend and uh, a very interesting week as well. A lot of issues happening in Africa and uh, particularly in Nigeria. Yes, that's right. A lot of issues. And today we are discussing some of those issues. Why don't we get right into today's discussions? Ghana, what's caught your attention this week? It is this issue of Twitter ban in Nigeria that has continued to generate a lot of controversies. You know, that has continued to divide opinions within the country and outside of the country, because people are fueled it from different perspectives and have a very strong opinion on this issue. But today I'm going to be talking about how the ban intersects with businesses in the country. About 35% of the Nigerian population rely on uh, social media for their news information. And the majority mm-hmm. of the folks in the country are using Facebook. And next to that are the people that are making use of Twitter. So Twitter is relatively popular in the country. A majority wow. of these users are between the age of 18 and 25. And they make use of this Twitter for many things. They use it for sharing information. A significant percentage of that population, but we don't actually know the actual statistics that are using it for business purposes. So one of the arguments that is out there is that the ban of Twitter is taking these people out of business. So there has been a lot of contention here and there about the life implication of that. With some figures being thrown out that the country itself is losing about $6 billion on a daily basis wow. for banning Twitter. So it's not just about individuals losing economic activities or losing their income from the ban of Twitter. It's also about the loss that accrues to the country. So there are perspectives on this. And uh, when we talk about people that are using Twitter for businesses, we generally want to think about the influencers themselves. It includes influencers who use it as a means of generating income for themselves. And they okay. seem to be the big one, the big gainers of the use of Twitter for businesses. And there are other people that are using it for all sorts of businesses, including people that want to sell their merchandise. I have some healers that sell their you know, merchandise through Twitter. They advertise their mm-hmm. clothing, and then they get a lot of consumers uh, from across the country by using Twitter. So I have some healers that are using Twitter for business, and uh, they've moved their business to Facebook since the ban of Twitter. And I also have people that are using Twitter for communicating or disseminating political information. And on the list as well are people that are using Twitter for scamming. So scamming to some people is a form of business. <laughs> so, they, they <laughs> so they use it for all sort of business in the country. So that's the thing that has been on my mind, the economic implication of Twitter ban on Nigerians that are using it as a means of livelihood and on the country as a whole. 
I have a question regarding this issue because there are so many angles to this story and I'm glad that you touched on business. What I'm curious about is, do you think the Nigerian government took business or the economic consequences of the ban into consideration when they made the decision to ban Twitter? Obviously, the answer is no, because the reason for banning Twitter was mainly because the platform was being used for promoting messages that the government considered inimical to the continued corporate assistance of the country. And I think I share the sentiment because I've followed this debate through and through and accumulated sufficient fact to believe that whatever is making income for people in the country should not come first and above the security of the country. And this is a call to accountability on the part of Twitter. And I'm happy that the leadership of Twitter is responding to this by initiating high-level conversation with the government. They call it public high-level conversation with the government. I don't know why they chose to use the word public, but they said it's going to be an open one. So the conversation seems to be going on currently. But when the government was taking this decision, they never considered the economic implication of it. However, interestingly, as an afterthought, the government came up with an argument that for Twitter to continue to operate in the country, we need to register. And there are tax implications that comes to that. Once you register with the country, they have the right to decide whether you are registering as a platform or as a publisher. And it is most likely mm -hmm. that Nigerian government is to get Twitter register as a publisher. And once you get registered as a publisher, there are implications to that, regulatory implications to that, and tax implications to that, with that meaning that Twitter is going to be paying taxes to the Nigerian government, which is a good news for the country because it means more income for the country. And we can use some of this income to address some of our development challenges. That said, there's another dimension to this. It's also about people that are using Twitter for businesses. Are they paying personal income taxes on the income that they are generating through their business activities on Twitter? I don't think that is the case. One of the issues this bunch will open from a business perspective is that how do we get folks who are making use of Twitter in the country to pay personal income taxes? And it's not just personal income taxes. It's also taxes from the gift that they receive from individuals for which possibly they share some pictures, they share some adverts, they share some stories about the product or about the activities of those companies. You know, such a gift is taxable. And the question is, is that the case currently in the country? So I see this as an opportunity to have extensive conversation about how government can actually be generating income from those that are using Twitter for generating personal income. And when you use Twitter to generate personal income, you have to do a status. You have the status of an employee as an employer, particularly when you are self-employed through Twitter. So you have a double-edged responsibility when it comes to taxation matters. But up until now and before the ban, that was not on the table in terms of conversation. I mean, Ghana, that sounds good, but there are many social media platforms. I'm just curious, all of what we're talking about, is it just for Twitter? Because Facebook is operating in the country. Instagram is also used a lot by the public in Nigeria. So I feel like this focus is on Twitter now because this 
ban happened to Twitter. But are these policies and everything that people are talking about, are they going to be applied to every other social media platform? Because if it's a good thing for Twitter, then it should be a good thing for Facebook, for Instagram, and for others, TikTok, and all of those. To add on to Gloria, so as you give the response, probably you can add this to it as well. What is the temperature like, you know, among the people? Because honestly, I had never thought about it from that angle. And it's such a refreshing angle to think about from because, I mean, this is a momentous, you know, time that if handled well could reap potentially very high economic benefits for the country. And I'm just curious to know, what is the temperature within the people about getting them taxed? Because I know, of course, yes, taxes are supposed to help provide public goods, but eh, taxes are not something that we enjoy that much. So as much as, for example, business owners are, you know, complaining about not being able to access their clients and they're losing money because Twitter is currently suspended. How excited are they too about contributing to the country's economic gain through taxes if this carries through? That's the proposition of some people in government as well. And you know what? The thing is this, and this comes back to who are the real active users of Twitter in Nigeria that are using it to generate income. That may be concerned by government taxing the income that they make from Twitter. The other segment of the society that is also concerned, you know, really concerned about the ban, are those that are working in the civil society spaces. But this is one of the means that they communicate their ideas, their program to a broader audience without having to pay money. You know, and I understand them because it's financially heavy on them to get to propagate their activities through the traditional news outlet, the national deal is very, very expensive. So mechanisms like Twitter provide them the avenue to do this at low cost or at no cost. So I can see them being really agitated about that. But back to your question, I believe that the social media influencers, they are going to create an atmosphere that people are not happy if the government should go the direction of asking those that are using Twitter to generate income to pay taxes because they've been evading taxes. I call them tax evaders. That's because they know they are generating personal income. They are educated enough to know that they have to pay taxes on personal income, but they simply are not doing this because what they consider social media influencer to them is a social concept. It's a social type. They don't consider it as a form of employment, but for somebody like me, I read it as a form of employment because they are making a lot of money from doing this. And that is what keeps them in business. And that is why they always want their fame to be going high and high so that they have more followers. Because more followers means more money for them. And that should mean more income for the government. And I want to jump in there, just a little bit of facts on the usage. So NOI polls estimates that 39.6 million Nigerians use Twitter. 20% mm -hmm. of them use it for business advertisements and 18% mm -hmm. use it to look for employment. So people will post mm -hmm. some sort of employment opportunities and then they'll apply. Mm -hmm. We all seen those posts for a variety of different organizations and companies. And it's expected mm -hmm. that the users will grow to 45 million by 2025. So there's going to be significant growth in terms of Twitter's expansion. I want to come back to what Gloria had mentioned earlier about the other social media platforms. I think there is a public perception that is present that this is not about taxation 
that this may not be about insecurity in the country because it is focused on one platform, in this case, Twitter. So I think the government needed to think a little bit more creatively about how they would then force the hand of the other social media companies, unless there is some sort of plan for that engagement to happen thereafter. But the perception now is that it's targeting Twitter for a variety of reasons. Number one, the, the incident that happened with the president and Twitter with the tweet that was taken down. Number two, the events that happened before this that frustrated many in the government, including one of the key figures who's been speaking in favor of the Twitter ban, Minister of Information, who was frustrated with Twitter's headquarters being located in Ghana. So I think the government, whether these issues are important or not, they have a bit of a perception issue if it is seen to be going after this one platform, because we know that Facebook usage, if we had the numbers in front of us, would be equally as large for Nigeria. Right. And we know that Facebook also has even more tools when it comes to selling things online and having yes. sort of an online presence. And then, of course, Instagram. If you've listened to any Afrobeat song coming out of Nigeria, you will recognize that Instagram is the platform to be on. But maybe you could argue that that platform hasn't been used for more political discussions, things of that nature. I guess you could make that argument, but it stands to reason that there is this perception that things are being done very unevenly and very reactively, as opposed to what you've suggested, Ghana, is a very proactive or sort of well-thought-out plan and how they're going to regulate these companies. And I agree with you, Gloria, that that's a question that one could raise. I just want to touch on what Peter just said. It's very true. I mean, if your focus is just on Twitter, people are going to think that you're targeting Twitter for all the other reasons that Peter has stated. We also have to think about YouTube because a lot of people are also making money from YouTube, YouTube ads and a lot of mm -hmm. stuff. People are sharing stuff, videos and clips. People have like their own family things that they are doing on YouTube. So I, I think that it should be broader than just going after Twitter. You also have to set various rules and regulations that these social media companies have to comply with in the first place. On the issue of taxation, influencers have to pay tax. But you may say they have to pay tax, but they, they can find a lot of ways to avoid paying the tax. Because there are already right. a lot of loopholes in the system that can help you to evade tasks. So I feel like it has to come from the institution, the task institution, whoever is imposing it, the revenue service have to be stronger in terms of going after them. I don't know whether this is about influencers paying taxes or not paying taxes or, or whatnot. A lot of these influencers are not making extreme amounts of money on these platforms. Violet, you can attest to this. In Uganda, they've had the same conversation. We're regulating social media. Indirectly, they may be making some benefits to their popularity and things of that nature, but directly they're not making income from the platform, like selling on the platform per se, lots and lots of merchandise. But, you know, the, the issue isn't about the taxation, although that's mentioned. The issue is about squeezing people out of that social media space, right? Putting a tax mm -hmm. that is quite regressive on people, these small influencers, these Ugandan influencers who have just, a, you know, a good number of followers, but they're not making super amounts of revenue. They're making some basic income here and there that are being taxed and targeted. It's not to tax them. It's to push them off the platform. So we have to be very careful when we start talking about these types of taxes and these types of enforcement. When you look at the lifetimes of majority of the influencers, it speaks to the amount of money that they make. Most of them 
they don't have any form of job that you know them before they actually started making money through the internet. So anecdotally, we can make some informed assumption about how much you're making. And I can tell you from a family perspective who runs a business through Twitter, how much a person makes by selling a merchandise. They make good money. But the problem is that before we don't have this data, we don't have the benefit of making authoritative claim about how much is that money that influencers are making. But that's not a Twitter issue. So this is a tax compliance issue, right? This is a tax compliance. People have to declare the money that they make from all their different sources. But you know the good thing about the bank? has nothing to do with social media. And that's the point, right? Some (laughs) people are putting the tax, like in Uganda, to force people off to the platform. If your issue is just about taxation and making sure people pay their fair share, which they should, then that's an issue of tax compliance. So focus attention on tax compliance, if that's the central issue here. We can't dismiss this fact that Twitter allowed itself to be used as an object for fostering insecurity in the country, for fostering messages of hate. And on several occasions, they were called to order and they refused to take down those tweets. Instead, they took down the tweet of the president. And it was after they were banned in the country that he took down the tweet of Unam Dekano. There is that evidence. There is that evidence, very compelling evidence. So the good thing about these two ministries that is forcing everybody to be accountable, is forcing Twitter to be reassessing how they do things. Interestingly, Twitter is having big problems in India. And there was an article that I read that if Twitter's problem continue in India, and if their problem continue in Nigeria, two emerging markets, that their future significantly depend on. It will affect the financials of Twitter going forward. So if we're saying fostering insecurity in the country, how about Facebook and Instagram? Would you suggest that they should shut down those platforms as well and have a complete a conversation and reset on the social media front? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. But in fairness to the government, I think the framing of what needs to change in terms of how the government is dealing with these spaces and how they are dealing with the country is very comprehensive. It's not just restricted to Twitter. I'm more interested in is this, Pira. What is the nature of this emerging conversation? What does it mean for, you know, freedom of speech? And what does it mean for the country's health? And what does it mean when it comes to regulating uh, Twitter and uh, some of these social media spaces? To me, the argument shouldn't be about not regulating social media spaces. To me, it should be, how should they be regulated? Because leaving them unregulated might be meaning that you are incentivizing misinformation because people spread a lot of misinformation through these spaces and we know the consequences of misinformation. So I am of the opinion that the conversation should be, how should they be regulated? Not about not regulating Twitter because there is almost nothing in this world that is not regulated. A lot of civil society organizations who have been working on this issue of misinformation, like CDD West Africa, for example, who have been focusing on and studying from an academic and research perspective, the spread of information would probably agree that there are some significant concerns about the spread of misinformation. But one of the things that strikes me in this Twitter ban is that those potential partners, when it comes to having a conversation about misinformation, disinformation online, who are already dealing with that and were on the front lines of that, are being shut out of this conversation in the 
situation of the Twitter ban. So now they find themselves at odds with the government over the issues that you just mentioned, the issues of freedom of speech, internet freedom, which they've emphasized as well. I think what had been more useful is for those organizations to have a conversation before there was any Twitter ban, to have that relationship present in this period where we're thinking about these issues of disinformation and misinformation. And at least for now, that hasn't happened. So there isn't that conversation between those people who have been working on that for some time. Violet, you had something to say. I do think that this conversation is multifaceted and we cannot come at it from one angle. The taxation angle is legitimate, even though we need to be considerate about whether, as Peter said, the tax is either going to be progressive or aggressive, but the taxation issue is legitimate because, Mm -hmm. yes, people do make money from having businesses on Twitter and other social media platforms, but yes, we'll have to come and deal with the ethical and equitable aspect of the tax. Secondly, when we say that the government of Nigeria has been largely reactive in dealing with the Twitter issue, I agree with Peter that, of course, maybe they didn't see this coming. And if they did, they didn't have structures to adequately deal with it. But I do think that rather than criticize the fact that they are still dealing with just Twitter. We also need to consider the fact that it becomes quite impossible to take on all the social media platforms at once. So Twitter could be looked at as a starting point to begin the conversation around regulation of social media platforms. So just taking bite-sized pieces, beginning with Twitter, and then rolling out a more comprehensive platform with Twitter as the pilot project, if we could call it that, and then, you know, spreading it out later to dealing with other social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram. And then, of course, there's also the issue of internet freedom, misinformation and disinformation. Again, we have to very thoughtfully think about what the fine line is between and among these variables, because if we are talking about regulation of speech, if it is deemed, for example, misinformation or it's deemed as inappropriate. Because I know, for example, these social media platforms do have their own community guidelines and standards. But we also need to think about it from the perspective of the governments of these countries. When it comes to regulation, who has more regulatory power over these platforms? Will it be the governments of these countries or will it be the owners of these platforms? And then if it is the government's For example, and we do have maybe the case of an authoritarian government. When it comes to regulate speech and deems it inappropriate or misinformation or propaganda, what is the thin line between infringement of freedom of speech and actually regulation of speech to protect the public or the government and other interests? I mean, it's it's a myriad of things. I'm glad we are starting this conversation and I hope it continues. However, I'm in favor of the government of Nigeria starting with Twitter as a bite-sized piece on a pilot project, but the conversation is much larger and much more multi-layered than it Mm. appears to be. Agreed. Agreed. Good point, Violet. This needs to be studied thoroughly and make sure that it's applied across the board, not just for Twitter. We need to see this implemented for other social media platforms. So, And I think the government of Nigeria has a lot of work to do to regain the public's mm-hmm. trust. There's so many other issues in Nigeria, like unemployment, insecurity, so many things. And I think part of the reason why people didn't react well to the Twitter ban is because of, there were issues already that the public has been complaining about and the government doesn't seem to be acting with the same amount of speed 
as they did with the case of Twitter. A lot of discussions to be had. So join us on our Discord community and we will keep having this discussion. All right. So Peter, what's on your mind this week? So what's on my mind this week is the death of the former president of Zambia, Kenneth Kuanda, who many of you may know. He was the independence leader of Zambia. So he was a prime minister before independence, just before independence, and then was the head of the United National Independence Party or UNIP party in Zambia that led the country through independence and then after independence until he lost elections in the early 90s at the end of the Cold War, which I'm going to come to in a bit. Now, Kenneth Kuanda has been talked about in a lot of different circles, and there are a lot of great obituaries or conversations about his legacies that are out there, and those will be included in the show notes, so check those out. For example, one by Nick Cheeseman and Shishua Shishua, who's a professor in Zambia, have written a really good piece about the legacy of Kenneth Kuanda and his impact. In general terms, there's a real positive feeling about Kenneth Kuanda and his legacy, at mm. least at this period of time. So let me talk a little bit about what that legacy was and why perhaps we have this very positive view of the late president of Zambia. So the first thing that we can think about throughout the tenure of Kenneth Kuanda is an emphasis on unity and nationhood of Zambia. And he emphasized that throughout at the very beginning. And he used to say, one Zambia, one nation. That was one of his key phrases. He would always say at any sort of event, again, one Zambia, one nation. And he emphasized that. Zambia is a country, like many African countries, like many countries around the world, that is quite diverse ethnically, linguistically, and otherwise. So this message of unity, of bringing people together, as opposed to ruling through some sort of divide and rule or ruling through somebody's ethnic community of which on one side of the family, he actually was part of one of the major ethnic communities. He decided that he would emphasize this unity message. And I should mention one of his parents was born in Malawi. So this is a little bit about his background and his approach. He was also one that had a left wing bent to his rulership. He emphasized a major role of the state in the economy in different ways. What one could say is a more socialistic approach to economy and economic development. For example, in 1969, copper, which is one of the major exports at the time, the major export of the country of Zambia was nationalized. The mines were nationalized to develop the country economically. Unfortunately for the president, the copper prices tumbled in the 1970s and 1980s, as did a lot of natural resource prices in that era across the continent. So it wasn't just in Zambia. We also see the collapse of the price of oil, for example, and petroleum products during this period too. And so it put a heavy burden on a state that was procuring education, was procuring healthcare, things of this nature. The state was very much involved in the economy, but Again, that money dried up and people began to get restless as some of those services declined, which led to the country taking, like many countries, a loan from international sources, including the international financial institutions, which came with all of those conditions of receiving those monies, mainly raising the price of certain goods, getting the state out of the economy in certain areas, which led to further discontent as the price of very basic food goods increased throughout the 1980s and Kenneth Kwanda's popularity began to decline and decline significantly. So all during this period, Kenneth Kwanda, you know, emphasized one Zambia, one nation 
And he did so with a little bit of repression during this period, but not as much as some of his neighbors and not as much repression as we see today in more similar one-party states or or situations where there's a hegemonic party. So he didn't use the kind of repressive tools that he could have, and he ends up embracing multi-partyism at the beginning of the 90s in the late 1980s and holding multi-party elections, which then he loses terribly. He gets like only a quarter of the vote in Zambia after being president since the early 60s. His popularity had clearly eroded. And we've seen leaders lose elections and, you know, respond to that in a variety of ways. And I think this goes back to his positive legacy. And the reason why he's viewed so lovingly is that at that time where he lost those elections in 1991, is he stepped aside peacefully, immediately accepted the result and handed over power. And so that's part of his positive legacy there. There's some more things that I'll say about him. He has that quintessential legacy of, again, an emphasis on unity, an emphasis on peace and and an emphasis on a mindset change when it came to elections and accepting those elections thereafter. Interesting. I read somewhere that he was an avid ballroom dancer. Did anybody know that about him? Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely didn't. I only knew him for his famous calendar suit, as we know it in Uganda, the single-breasted, sometimes short-sleeved suit. So I didn't know about the ballroom dancing, but definitely the Kaunda suit. It's funny because I did grow up thinking it was just called the Kaunda suit until I began to learn about Kenneth Kaunda in uh, African history classes. And I was like, oh, okay. When I you know, made the connection and I'm like, okay, that's one interesting legacy. Well, yeah, it he, still is known as the Kaunda suit. <laughs> he, he obviously wow. had a life outside of politics, both while he was in politics and then thereafter. So it's a good example that there is life after power, right? And you mentioned, Gloria, the ballroom dancing. Violet, you mentioned the Kawanda suit. So I have a Kawanda suit right here. Oh my so God. I don't know if I look very good on it. And one of the interesting things about the Kawanda suit, in addition to this, is that Believe it or not, but Kenneth Kwanda has his own clothing line as well. So he was quite an entrepreneur after leaving power. So he has his own suit line that plays off of the famous Kwanda suit. That is that short sleeve suit. How long have you had a Kwanda suit? Exactly. And how long have you had a Kwanda suit? I actually got it in Cote d'Ivoire because, as you mentioned, Violet, the Kwanda suit is very popular in different places, not just in Zambia, right? Mm-hmm. It, it became a whole continental affair. You even see it in other places around the world, in the Caribbean, for example, mm-hmm. as well. So this one is from Cote d'Ivoire. So I had to tailor make up a Kwanda <laughs> suit because all the, the folks in Cote d'Ivoire were also wearing it. So I think it just shows wow. his oh impact God, continentally, Peter. not only in the political element in his emphasis on unity, but also these cultural symbols of those early days of independence as well, including the famous Kanda suit. Uh, and wow. uh, what I really yeah. like about his legacy is this emphasis on unity, appreciating our diversity and making that to count. And when he lost election, he didn't go to organizing, you know, those issues that he had very critical to the development of Zambia. And I think that's a lesson for other countries like Nigeria, where our diversities are being considered problems and are being used as a reason for us to go apart in the country. So when I heard about his Zets, 
uh, one of the things that came to mind is that this is the time to talk more about what you live for in terms of diversity, what you live for in terms of unity and making our unity to come towards our diversity and towards our development on the continent. And I think the message is truthful and it lives its entire life on was not just for Zambia. I think it's a message that goes a long way for different African countries to think about it and then think about what they can do about this in order to address their local challenges that are related to issues of you know, diversity, either tribal diversity, religious diversity, or what to view. I, I felt uh, we, we, we lost a, a, a magnificent personality, but his legacies are there for us to always tap into to see what we can do better on the continent. One of the things we are missing is his famous handkerchief. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And uh, Peter, you have totally made my day with the call in the suit. I wasn't expecting that. And I'm going to be laughing for quite a while. <laughs> I hopefully will see you in the near decked out in it. But you did mention something about him living a full life after, you know, his presidential term. And I'm just curious, is that a dog whistle to the more authoritarian leaders, especially the African leaders? I think so. I think we can take away many lessons from this because Mm -hmm. there have been in, Mm -hmm. in neighboring Zimbabwe, there was a period of time where a president used repression, that is the former President Mugabe, quite a lot to quote unquote win an election, Mm -hmm. most likely had lost an election and most likely should have stepped down from power at at that period of time. And I think it is a lesson that that there is a life outside politics and that this peaceful Mm -hmm. transfer can be embraced and look at your legacy and look at how you're spoken about if you actually have the sort of forethought to to do so. So you see us having a, mm. a very positive conversation mm. about Kenneth Kwanda's legacy on, on the back of that major decision. And I think another piece of this is that Kenneth Kwanda, as opposed to those who leave power that live high on the hog, so to speak, he lived very humbly. He was a very humble mm. guy. And so he didn't yeah. live in some sort of palatial mansion after he retired or was you know, demanding money of government and things of this nature or respect, demanding respect. He commanded respect because of his actions and his deeds and that he lived a, a more humble life. And I think part of that has to do with his religious upbringing as well. So he mm. very much was a, a religious man who came from a family that also had those who are men of and women of God in the family as well. So I think that played a role. And I think it serves as a model for what that could look like. Yeah, I, I agree. And just on the Kenneth Kuanda suit here and the entrepreneurship side, this is a picture of him with one of his entrepreneurs that was doing the sewing for his Kuanda suit. Wow. So beautiful. Amazing. Maybe we should try out one of those. Wow. It's so great for all the things you mentioned. Uh, For me, like all of you have said, the message of unity was one of his strengths. And unfortunately, we don't see a lot of that in today's leaders. So yeah, we celebrate his legacy. So before we discuss our next story, Eva, I have a quiz question for you. All right, so here it goes. Amazon is planning to build its new Africa headquarters in which city? And let me give you a hint. Local people, indigenous people in that community are opposed to Amazon building its headquarters in their community. Which city is it? I know they are trying to build it in South Africa and I'll pick Cape Town. 
You're right. It's in Cape Town. Mm -hmm. And since they've announced that development, indigenous people have been out on the street protesting because that particular site is believed to be a heritage site. And so they do not want development of that kind of nature in that place. So we don't know how this is going to play out. It'd be great to keep an eye on this story and see whether Amazon succeed in building their building in that community. All right. So Violet, what's on your mind? Kenneth Kaunda is on my mind. But anyway, <laughs> what's been on my mind this week is the whole diamond fever that's going on right now in Southern Africa. But well, okay, here's the story. So Debsona, a diamond mining firm in Botswana, announced the discovery of what is believed to be the third largest diamond of its kind in the entire world. And the stone is a whooping 1,098 carats. It is apparently the largest diamond to have been recovered by Debsona at the time of this show in its history of over 50 years in operation. As I said, it is the third largest in the world behind a 3,106 carat Killinan found in South Africa in 1905 and the 1,109 carat Lesidi Lerona discovered in Botswana again in 2015. So according to Botswana's Mineral Minister Lefoko Mawadi, he said that the discovery of the stone, which is yet to be named as the other two have names, measures 73 by 52 by 27 millimeters and could not have come at a better time after the pandemic hit, you know, diamond sales in 2020. So apparently in 2020, production fell by 29% and sales fell by 30% to 2.1 billion US dollars because the pandemic affected both production and demand. Now, hold that thought. Meanwhile, in South Africa, a diamond rush seems to have gripped the country as more than 1,014 seekers flocked to uh, the village of Palati in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province because they believed that diamonds had been discovered in the area after a herdsman apparently discovered what was thought to be uh, diamond crystals. Now, of course, people are flocking to this village and trying to, you know, dig for these crystals. And some of them have begun selling the crystals. However, the government has come out to, you know, discourage people from continuing to dig up the ground because apparently they're increasing the risks of spreading COVID-19 and also pending analytical testing by geological and mining experts from the government. Now, the question that is on my mind is to what extent do these mineral resources in these countries and other you know, mineral resource-rich countries in Africa really translate into tangible economic gain for ordinary citizens and improve their overall quality of life? And I'm saying this because Debswana in Botswana is a joint venture between Anglo-Americans, the Boers, and the Botswanan government. And the Botswanan government receives as much as 80% of the income from sales through dividends, royalties, and taxes. This should translate into improved socioeconomic outcomes for citizens, right? And then for South Africa, if these mysterious stones really do turn out to be legitimate, will the villagers tangibly benefit or will they even be allowed back into that place? And if the government takes over the mining beyond just blue collar jobs, how much do they stand to gain, you know, real lasting socioeconomic benefits from this whole thing? That's what's on my mind. And I'm really interested in hearing what the team has to say about this. You know, 
our countries are really blessed with a lot of resources. And look at some of the amazing stories we are hearing and also some of the discoveries that have been made from natural resources. But as you said, it's both a blessing and a curse because we've had issues where there have been conflict over resources. We've heard about these um, mm. stories in Congo where there have been a lot of conflict over mineral resources and other things. There have been a lot of conflict, even in Nigeria, based on the oil, the data and the shell, like polluting environment mm. and things like that. So we've had significant mm. issues when it comes to our national resources. But I really like the turn that Botswana has been taking when they discovered their uh, diamonds. What they've tried to do over the years is to invest it into tangible infrastructure, development, education, healthcare, and also job creation for their citizens. And actually, Botswana was one of the poorest countries in African country. But after they discovered the diamond, they've moved from being one of the poorest to become like a middle-sized economy, which is very significant. So for me, the thing is, what are they doing differently? than other African countries? Is it because the government holds 50% of the shares um, when it comes to the diamond industries or companies? And also, is it because that 80% of the profits of the income generated from these diamonds is retained in the country? So I think this is very significant thing that we don't have to overlook it. Because if you look at Nigeria, if you look at Ghana, if you look at Congo, like these countries have so much resources, but Look at the life of the people. And they've you done know. a great job in investing in strategic areas. So it's not just a matter of keeping the money in the country, right? It's what you do with that money when you keep it in the country. And mm-hmm. one of the areas that the government has emphasized is education. So, for mm-hmm. example, if you look at Afrobarometer, 65% of people in Botswana say that the government is handling education either very well or fairly well. Those are astounding numbers. And let me give you a little bit of the backstory behind it. For most colleges and universities, they can be free to students. In addition, students mm-hmm. will receive a stipend, something to live on oh, okay. uh, as a student in the country. And that money is coming from the revenues that the state are taking in and then redistributing to people in the country. So it's not just a matter of keeping the money in the country, as we were talking about earlier with the issue of tax. It's what that money is used for and where that Mm -hmm. transfer is going. And you can see in Botswana that there is this embrace of that policy, particularly around education and their emphasis on education in the country. And that's one of the reasons why in the development arena, the Botswana model is considered a developmental state, a model that many African countries can look into to address their problem of underdevelopment. Like would recall later, having these very highly sustained conversations with some folks on this issue when we're exploring what are the alternative, indigenous alternative to doing development that Africans can actually leverage. The Botswana model has been considered a, a success story sort that is uh, relatively indigenous to Africa, not entirely indigenous to Africa, but there is a cultural model that reflects in the setting up of their institution and how that is translated into the heart of doing development. And that they are focusing on education speaks for all of It shows that when we invest more in education, is an investment that is going to translate qualitatively to addressing many of our underdevelopment problems. And I think this is one of the lessons mm. for countries like Nigeria, countries uh, and other countries in Africa to learn from the Botswana model in terms of what they are doing, where particularly 
in the area of our institutional arrangement and the areas of making use of those resources to invest in very strategic areas that will come around to help translate natural resource endowment into real qualitative development. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm hearing the sound of talking drums. So this means we arrived to the end of this show. And thank you so much to all of you who have joined us. We hope you will join us again for our next episode of Leaders of Africa this week. Make sure to subscribe to Leaders of Africa this week in your favorite podcast app and on YouTube. We are on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. New episodes arrive bi-weekly on Wednesdays. Join our Discord community to continue the conversation and follow Leaders of Africa on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram for all new and great content. And this is all for this week. Thank you. Until next time.